Turning your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 6. Now this is the interesting part. I'm going to go a little slow. Not that I've been very fast, but I'm going to go a little slow in Ephesians chapter 6 because this is probably the, uh, this is the meat of Ephesians. Even though, even though Paul's given us an awful lot of truth, uh, spiritual warfare is something that the church does two way, two, looks at two ways. The first way the church in general looks at it is they don't look at it. You know, most churches you go to will not even talk about spiritual warfare. It's almost like if there's an enemy out there, we don't even want to know about him. The other way, people sometimes get overbalanced with it and they look at something and they, and they, they don't know where they stop and their, their problems stop, where demons would, would come in and, uh, and hinder us. So we're going to have a really balanced look at what Paul is talking. How many of you believe in spiritual warfare? Well, you need to because it's biblical. So Ephesians chapter 6, verses 1 through 9. Let me give you this uh, little study that I've been trying to kind of uh, put into your memories. Uh, one of the, the word for memory uh, and memory tools is the word mnemonics. And there's a lot of ways to remember your Bible. Sometimes I teach a course on memory. Everybody tells, uh, tells me that uh, how can you retain so much? How can you, anybody can retain things. You just have to trick your mind to be able to do that. So this part of mnemonics is re- repetition. That's what you use from, from grade school. You remember repetition. That's one of the reasons why I tell you about the church being a body, a temple, a mystery, a new man, a bride, and a soldier. There's other ways. There's other mnemonics. For example, if you have a Bible and you want to remember every place where you find a messianic prom- prophecy... One of the great things to do is you can actually take a little star, put a little star next to that prophecy, so whenever you go through your scripture, you can see that. There's a lot of different ways to remember, and uh, maybe one day at the end, in, before December, should the Lord Terry, I'll teach you some more ways to do that. But uh, this, is, uh, this is something that really te- teaches us about uh, the analogies that Paul used. Again, remember, these are the practical and the uh, doctrinal, doctrinal first body temple mystery, chapter 1, 2, and 3. In chapter 4, 5, and 6, the new man, bride, and a soldier. Notice how aggressive this gets. A new man is kind of general in, in a sense. That's about born again. A bride is more specific. He's picking out a bride. But a soldier is something that is extremely volatile. It's totally different than these other analogies. And so it's really something that, uh, that he really wants to emphasize. And that's why he, stu- he uh, leaves it for the last, uh, last chapter. So the soldier's relationship. We've been telling you about this. And we've been telling you about our chart and about our outline. And let me just give you this again. I do this so that we can't get lost. And I don't have to rabbit chase and I can come back. The soldier's relationship, chapter 6, verses 1 through 9. And then the soldier's enemy. Now, we last left off in chapter, in chapter 6, verse 4 last week. And we're going to continue all the way to chapter 6, verse 12. And then we're going to kind of stall on verse 12. And uh, especially on the armor when we get to that in a couple weeks. So, uh, the soldier's relationships. Last week, we talked about authority. We talked about discipline. We talked about obedience. Citing young David's strong obedience to his uh, parental authority. Now, you'd wonder, why would Paul start out... Uh, chapter on soldiers talking about authority and parents. Well, because he's building something up, as I'll actually show you tonight. I didn't show you last week, but I'll show it to you tonight. Paul is to instruct us and is going to instruct us and the Ephesian believers in chapter 6 on what it takes to be a soldier in, God, in Christ's army. It's not just saying I'm a soldier in the, in the army of the Lord. There's some prerequisites you have to do, and that's what he's talking about. Uh, some of those prerequisites come in chapter 6, verses 1 through 4. Let's read that. Uh, this is going over last week. Children, obey your parents in the Lord. You wonder, why would you talk about children and parents when you're talking about his chapter on soldiers? Uh, for this is right. Honor thy father and thy mother, which is the first commandment with promise, that it may be well with thee, and thou mayest live long on the earth. And you fathers, provoke not your children to wrath, but bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. So he's talking about this. So he's talking about parents and children. We're going to go from that to the soldiers' relationships in other ways. Look at verses 5 and 6. Now he says, Servants, be obedient to them that are your masters according to the flesh, with fear and trembling in the singleness of your heart as unto Christ. Not with eye service as men pleasers, but as the servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. I'm going to ask a couple questions tonight. Just to let you know, does anybody see any similarities about the parents and children and these next two verses? What, what is he getting at? Why are these related? Why are they in the same chapter? Why would Paul put children obeying parents and then servants and masters in the same chapter? Anybody have any idea? Discipline. It's discipline and it's authority. He's setting up an authority structure. He's giving you both sides of authority. He's giving you, he's giving you children and he's giving you parents. He's giving you servants and he's giving you masters. Today it wouldn't be servants. Today it would be employees 
and employers. He's setting something up, and I want you to—I want to really make the connection tonight for you, so you understand it. Now, it's very, very powerful. It's a, he says, "Not with eye service." You've how many of you have worked a steady job most of your lives? Let me tell you something. Here's what most people do, and I'm not saying you do, but most people in the secular world do this: they will work as long as the boss is looking at them. Once the boss isn't looking at them, they will kind of fool around a little bit. How many know what I'm talking about? Well, Paul's saying you don't want to do that. When he talks about servants, he's actually talking about servants that work in a household. But you can relate it to employees and employers. He's saying if you are only working, he's talking about Christian soldiers now. And he talks about parents and children. He says, if you're, you have to obey your parents at all times. Parents, you can't override your children. He's giving you both sides of that authority structure. He's doing the same thing with servants and masters or employees and employers. He's t- telling employees, you can't, just, you can't just work only when the boss is around. If that's what you're doing, you will never be a good soldier for Christ. If you don't obey your parents, you will never be a good soldier for Christ. If you are too hard on your children, you will never be a good soldier for Christ. If you're an employer and you're too hard on your employees, you will never be a good servant for Christ. He's setting us up to let us know that there's some prerequisites before we become servants of Christ, and I re- or soldiers of Christ. I really think this really needs to be stressed in churches because it's not stressed at all. If you're a bad employee, what makes you think you're going to be a good soldier for Christ? You haven't learned discipline. You haven't learned authority structure. If you're a terrible child and, uh, and you come home out of church and uh, you're, you're talking back to your parents or, or, you're, or you're a parent and you're, you're uh, too aggressive with your children when you shouldn't be, how, what makes us think we're going to be soldiers for Christ? Paul says we've got to get some things in order. Now, I like what he's saying. Not with eye service or who's watching or all, because that means in the soldier realm, that means, let's take it to that point, I'll only fight when somebody's watching me fight. I'll only fight when, it, when it's observable. I'm not going to fight when it, I'm not going to put more effort into it. That's what this is all about, discipline and effort. I'm not going to put discipline and effort in if nobody sees me doing it. And Paul, Paul knows that. He knows the human condition. He knows that people are just kind of people pleasers and not really that, that basic understanding that they have to do, be true to yourself. Uh, or I'll obey as long as someone is watching. Or I'll be a Christian as long as someone's watching. Or I'll, be, I'll work as long as someone's watching. Look at verse 7. It says this, with goodwill doing service as to the Lord and not to men. Now, here's the problem. Sometimes we may be an employee, and I, I've, I've done this. After I got saved, I was an employee to, I told you this, to a man who was very, very aggressive, didn't like me at all, and I had to really conform, not to him, but to my Christian standards. I realized that in my job, I was called to be a Christian more than I was called to be a Christian in church. Anybody can be a Christian in church. Come on, somebody say amen. But can you be a Christian in, in the worst cases? The, the best example of your Christianity is when you're put in the worst scenario. That's the best example of your Christianity. So when somebody tells me they're a Christian, throw them in the worst scenario. Let's see if they are. I'll give you an example from Scripture. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, you throw them in, you throw them in fire. Either they're going to worship God or they're not. Either you're going to trust them or not. When you're in a work situation, either you're going to trust God or you're not. So your work situation proves whether you're a Christian or not. And that can happen with somebody that doesn't like you. You, you know, you're a... Your enemies, not that you have them, but maybe they made you an enemy. How you treat them is a sign of your Christianity. You know, I remember one time telling, uh, talking to the Lord about someone that was really, uh, they didn't like me at all. They were trying to make things hard for me when I was first, kinda, first ser- saved. And I remember praying, God, just get them out of my life. And I remember not a, not a verbal word or an audible word, but I remember in my spirit feeling this, God telling me, listen, I put them there for a reason. And if you can't get over them, I'll send 10 more just like them. Because we learn. Do we not learn from those people? Do we not learn from those? The negative things in our, in our lives we learn from. It's probably the best way we learn. You talk about mnemonics and memorizing, memorizing something or remembering something. You remember the negative things that happened in your life. And so these are the things we learn from. So look at verse 8. He's building this up. Knowing that whatsoever good thing any man doeth, the same shall he receive of the Lord, whether he be bond or free. Notice he doesn't say you'll receive of men. He says, if you do good, the Lord will reward you. Men may never reward you for doing good, by the way. There's a saying, I don't really like it, but um, it's a worldly saying. It says, no good deed goes unpunished. How many ever heard that? Sometimes you do a good deed and you know, it seems like you get punished for it. Well, the Lord will never punish you for a good deed. And he goes this, and ye masters, this is the other side of the authority structure, ye masters, he's just talking about servants, do the same things unto them, forbearing, threatening, don't threaten them, don't threaten your servants. If you don't get anything out of them, don't be a tough taskmaster on them. Uh, knowing that your master, it's God, also is in heaven, neither is there re, uh, 
I have a yellow and red and blue through that word because my Bible is just all marked up. Neither is the respect of persons with him. So what he's saying is that you have a master too. We all have masters. And he's giving this parent-child, this employee-employer, servant-master. He's giving it for a reason. The word respect there is the word meros. And you may not realize that it's in the Greek. You may not realize what that means, but it actually means to take your hand and to place it under the thigh of someone and swear an oath. Now, that may sound really strange to you, so I'm going to give you where it comes from. It's in Genesis, and Paul knows his Torah, the Old Testament, and he's using the same word in the Greek that was in the Hebrew. Listen to this. And Abraham said unto his eldest servant, remember we're talking about servants, of his house that ruled over all he had, put, I pray thee, thy hand under my thigh. Now, why would you want to be a servant put your hand under your master's thigh? And it means to put your hand right here. Let me tell you what it is. Pastor, shake my hand. Same thing. It means I'm, sw- I'm swearing an oath. When they swore oaths in the Old Testament, they would take their hands and put it under the thigh of their master, under the thigh of someone, because the strongest thing they could swear on, and this is very literal, by the way, the strongest thing they could swear on is their children. And so that's the, the fruit of their loins, and that's why they put their hand there. And so what he's saying is you have to have that bond, not only with your parents, but with, uh, with your with your employer, your employees, you have got, you have got to have a, a, desi- a desire to really back this covenant that you made as an employee or as an employer. I'm going to give you this example. I'm not going to say everything about it because I don't want it to go on tape. But I'm involved in a lot of different boards. And uh, some of those boards are TV stations, radio stations. I'm just I'm kind of throwing some extra things in there. But one of those is true. Okay, so uh, and basically what happens is... Uh, sometimes they have to hire employees. Now, these are Christian-based, and so when they hire the employees, they're Christian employees. But, you know, sometimes it's very verbal. They don't write out a contract. And so they may hire somebody, and, you know, two years down the line, they're not performing that what they're supposed to perform. And then I have other board members coming to me and say, well, we'd like to take some discipline over this person, maybe even cut their salary, maybe fire them. And, I, and they said, we really feel bad for them because... We don't want to hurt them. They're Christians. Well, how many understand that there is an oath that is taken when you sign a contract to get a certain amount of money from someone? There's an oath. You perform your side, and they perform theirs. We get in trouble when we think, well, let's just keep it going forever, uh, because you can't let it go forever. You have got to perform your side of it. That's what Paul's saying. You have, you have, as a soldier, you have certain things you have to do, certain oaths you've taken to your parents, to your employees if you have any, or to your employer if you have any. He's setting us up so we really understand. He says, you need to swear on your life. And he's not talking about swearing on God's name. He's a, you need to, to vow on your life that you will uphold those standards with an employer, employee, with a servant master, with a parent, with a child. So then Paul moves on, and let me tell you what he's going to. He's going to tell, take us right here uh, in this second part, the soldier's enemy. And we're going to spend an awful lot of time on the enemy because I don't think a lot of people in churches know what they're fighting. Even though we get some, some really kind of uh, tongue-in-cheek things and some simple things, it's not as parochial as we may think. There's a lot more there. Let me read verses 10 to 12. Finally, notice he says finally. This is the end of the message. This is the end of the letter to the Ephesians. He is saying finally because of this. He wants them to get this last thing. And finally is really in the Greek. It's very, very emphatic. It means if you've heard nothing else, hear this. So if if you've heard nothing else I've taught. And how long have I been here, by the way? Doing How long? Doing Six months doing Ephesians. That's, That's unbelievable. But if you've heard nothing else in the six months, hear this. Because this is, this is extremely important. It says, Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Verse 11. And put on the whole armor of God. And we'll be explaining that in the weeks to come, Lord willing. That you may be able to stand. Everybody take your pencil or your pen or your marker and circle that word stand. It's going to mean something very, very important in a moment. I guess they're calling for me. Stand against the wiles of the devil. Let me read it one more time. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. This is going to be very important to you. It's going to hit a bell and ring a bell with you tonight. If you look at that word, stand. It says, For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against rulers of darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. We're going to give you, we're going to talk about Satanism in detail, not the Satanism that you think. We're going to talk about, we're going to study what, what uh, the enemy's plans are and his motive operandi is. And then we're going to study angelology. We're going to talk about angels, the rank and file of angels, and how they pair up. And so in the weeks to come, Lord willing, we're going to do that. But tonight, I want you to see he's telling about, talking to us about the soldier's enemy. And we come to the theme of this chapter. This is the theme. 
which is the church is a good soldier of Jesus Christ. So far, we can see that God begins our training in the house, in the home. Then he continues training us in the world as either an employee or employer. It all ties together. Listen, poor fathers make poor Christians. Poor employer, employees make poor Christians. Poor employers make poor Christians. Excuses not to work usually float over to excuses not to serve God. If there is somebody lazy in the workforce, I promise you in their part of your church, they'll be lazy also. Discipline it goes all the way around. And I don't like to make examples of anyone, but probably I can because it's, it's better for people here. This man was on staff with me. He was one of the best workers I had. It was no, it's no uh, surprise to me that him working for Centerpoint, he's one of their best workers because he understands the ethic. He understands what it is. That, now, I can't say that about every pastor I worked with. I can't tell you every pastor I worked with was great, great, had great uh, work ethics. A lot of them did not. And I was wrong for, for even hiring some of them. I had to live with them a lot of times. How many of you ever, how many of you ever uh, found somebody like that, whether you're working with them or in a... It's hard. It's difficult. Uh, that's, Paul wants us to float over. He wants to say, if you're not disciplined in, in your work ethic or in your, in your uh, parental ethic, you're never going to be disciplined in your, in your soldier ethic. Getting away with something in our work lends acceptance to getting away with something in our walk. Paul is smart. He's an excellent teacher. A good child or a parent, two ends of the authority structure. A good employer or employee, two ends of the authority structure, will make a good soldier for Christ in any level of service. So now we learn the soldier's enemy. After he tells us that, he wants to set us up. Because he's saying this, the enemy is very strong, but don't think you're going to go and take on the enemy if you're not, if you're not a good parent or a good child or a good employer or a good employer. You're not going to do it. You have to have some ethics before you even try to take the enemy on. If you don't, he's going to beat you up because he's more disciplined than us. The enemy is consistent. I don't know if I told you this. I say it many times. He doesn't take vacations. You may go to the beach. He doesn't. And if he, do, if he goes to the beach, it's only to harass you. <laughs> so he doesn't take any vacations. He takes no time off. He's going to battle you every moment of your life. And that's his, that's his, that's his job. That's what he does. That's his uh, reason for being. So, uh, And now follow me because I'm about to say some things that you might disagree with. Maybe not, but maybe you will. Most average Christians have no idea where the enemy is. Matter of fact, most people who sit in church have no clue on how the enemy is working, where his main battles are fought. And I'm going to prove some things to you tonight. I do not think that the devil is concentrating his main efforts today in bars or on Skid Row or in the Mafia or in even places of prostitution. We look at those places and we call them places of evil, but I don't believe the enemy is centering his, his uh, demonic weapons and his demonic his demonic forces in those areas, even as evil as they are. And I'm going to prove that to you, not just, uh, just by saying it, but I'm going to prove it to you all the way down the line. If we were to look in the spirit world today, I don't think you'd see many demons in those areas. By the way, there's a limited number of demons. We know that a third of the angels of heaven fell. Uh, the Bible talks about in Revelation that Satan drew a third of the angels with his tail. And uh, it's kind of a symbol that tell you that the third of them trusted him, as amazing as that is, and they became demons. There's no more demons being created. There's a very limited number. The great part about it is two-thirds of the angels fight demons. So we have, we're, we have the mountain number two to one in angelology. So, but we know a third of them fell. They're limited. The more people on the planet, watch this, the more people on the planet, the less they have to go around. I mean, you know what I'm talking about. So the more people that are on the planet, the less there are to go around of demons. So demons are extremely limited. And I'm going to repeat a couple things. If we were to look into the spirit world today, I don't think you'd see them. Many demons in, in the areas of prostitution or in the bars or in uh, the cities that had some, have some real bad problems, gang problems. I'm sure these, there are some there. But I think the major battlefront for Satan today is, are you ready? The church on Sunday mornings. I think he concentrates his demons in the church. And I'm going to say a couple of things that's going to really ring true for you, especially, especially for this church and for any church really in this area. And you'll see some things that you maybe have not seen before. It's the largest battle of all, and I can prove it to you historically, I can prove it to you geographically, and I can prove it to you spiritually. Satan's always interested in spiritual warfare. Notice I said spiritual warfare. He's not interested in carnal warfare. He's interested in spiritual warfare. Listen, if he has already a, won a spot somewhere in, in our world, he concentrates little effort there. Why would you go and put your demons someplace where you've already won? If you're already occupying an area, you're looking, and if you're, if you're battle-hardened, you're looking for the next battle. How many are with me? Just listen to this logic. So what you're doing, what the enemy does, is if he, if he captures an area, he's not necessarily going to, going to keep his demons in mass there. He's going to move on to another area. 
He's greedy. He wants as much as he possibly can get. How many are following that tonight? So I'm going to prove that to you in a, in a little bit. So listen, if he's won a spot, he concentrates little effort on that. He moves on to uh, where the battle is. About 20 years ago, let me just show this to you geographically and historically. About 20 years ago, this was New York. Now, many of you have not been there. I've, Cheryl and I have been able to go to New York quite a bit. I live very close to it. Uh, this is uh, Chinatown. This is Greenwich Village. And I want to show you some of the areas. This is Battery Park. Uh, this is where the towers came down right over here. 20 years ago, it's totally different than it was today. 20 years ago, the mafia was controlling the shipping trade right over here. 20 years ago. This is Brooklyn over here. Murder and rape were over here in Brooklyn Heights 20 years ago. It was massive amounts of it. Uh, the New Age was centered down here by Battery Park. Matter of fact, they're still there today. If you go down to Battery Park, right where the ferries take off, you'll find out, you'll find out that the New Age is there and they're really pushing a lot of dramas and a lot of things that they have. Prostitution was all up here to the right side of Manhattan Island. And then you had uh, murder was here, rape. Uh, Chinese mafia was in Chinatown. Murder around Chinatown. This was 20 years of gay and New Age was over here by Greenwich Village. You had murder and rape right south of Greenwich Village. Prostitution was in 8th Avenue. Then you went to 45th Street or 48th Street, and it was the most vile place on the planet. I don't know if you, if you understand this because it's been cleaned up a lot. Mayor Giuliani cleaned it up when he was in his tenure. But if you went on, four, on 8th Avenue or 7th Avenue from 45th Street to 48th Street, you would be approached no less than 20 to 30 times by a prostitute. And you would, uh, there, were, there were so much filth, you couldn't even go there. If you took your family there, you had to avoid that area. Now, I want you to just follow this history for a moment because I'm going to give you a little history of what the enemy does. So I want you to also see the United States 20 years ago. The United States 20 years ago, and these cities, some of them have changed. Uh, the most dangerous city to live in today, by the way. Does anybody know what it is for murders? Chicago's number three. Washington's number two, Washington, D.C. Baltimore, Maryland's number one. Las Vegas is bad, but Baltimore, Maryland's one, number one. Per capita murders. These are the murder spots 20 years ago. New York City had 2,245 murders per year. They were way up there. Birmingham was actually up there too, but it's not, it didn't make the top, the top 20. These were, I believe, murder is one of the worst things that could possibly happen. Somebody say amen. It's a, these are satanic strongholds. And you'll see in these major cities a lot of vice, a lot of sin, a lot of things that you wouldn't have normally in rural areas. Now, just follow me tonight. So, but notice the Midwest and Central United States. Notice this in here. It doesn't look like there's a whole lot, but yet our worst crimes come out of those areas. Where was Columbine? Colorado. Colorado doesn't have that massive murders thing. Doesn't, our worst crimes come out of the areas that are, the, that are seemingly are, are away from the big stage. Um, how about Waco, Texas? You know, these, it's, a, it's a little blurb. If you've ever been to Waco, you, you blink and you're through it. So our worst crimes come there. What am I telling you? Well, if we believe in satanic warfare, then he's not concentrating his efforts on the areas he already has because he already has them. Sin perpetrates itself. How many know what I'm talking How many follow me tonight? The worst things you're going to see, and I, I, let me give you a prediction. The worst things you're going to hear, God forbid, in the future of crime is not going to come out of the big cities. They already have that crime. They already have that stuff. The worst things are going to come out of the rural areas. And you'll hear people that are interviewed. We never thought that would happen here. We've heard about it every place else. That's, you hear it over and over and over again. And I'm going to show you a couple reasons why that happens. I have, happen to think this is a pretty good strategy. And I've done this for years just to figure this out. And I think I've come up with it. So let me tell you about your own city. Let me tell you about Birmingham, Alabama. If you want to, want to see Birmingham and you want to see the crime, it's a wave. The, way, the crime in Birmingham has hit this way. And some of you may live in some of these areas. Just watch. You had a crime sweep about 20 years ago. It started in Bessemer, Fairfield, West End, Owenton. It started in Beverly Station, Mason, uh, Mason. And it started to come across. By the time you get to Smithfield, you see drugs, prostitution, Ellington, and Graymont, rape, murder, heavy crime. I'm following the crime statistics, by the way. I'm not giving you the, the numbers of, of crimes, but I'm following these. The wave kept coming across. Satan was moving. It's almost like a front. Once he takes an area, he keeps going. We never think of Satan this way. We never think of him as having a strategy. But 
Would he not have a strategy? I mean, would the, would the arch enemy of God not have a strategy, strategy for taking over an area? Come on. Somebody say, you don't think he's doing it haphazardly. You don't think he goes and haphazardly has a crime. There's a crime spree. There's a wave. It comes out. Now watch. He's going, it's going, it recently went to Roebuck. It's, the next up is Centerpoint. After Centerpoint, it's going to be Trustville. How can I say that? Because I see the pattern. The pattern is a sweep. And what he's doing in New York, no longer is he, is he taking over the, the Bowery and the South Sides. He's now moving to Midtown in New York. And by the way, most of the crimes right now are happening above 61st Street in Central Park. They're going into upper, the Upper East Side. So he is moving through it. That doesn't mean he's not working in these other areas, but he's already, he's already had the stronghold down there. So he, how many see this? So he's moving up. You know, it used to be, I mean, there were people who lived in Centerpoint uh, 20, 25 years ago. It was one of the great places to live. Centerpoint right now has crime flowing in it. It's moving that way. You may think it's demographics. It's the enemy. The enemy is moving through cities. He moves that way all the time. He has, he has an agenda. Now, I'm going to show you some other things that are going to, going to uh, match up with that. So you won't see massive amounts of demons, I don't believe, in these areas that are already won by him. The wickedness of humans control those areas already. You know, if you have a wicked, if you have the mafia, Chinese mafia, in Chinatown, the enemy doesn't have to keep a whole lot of demons there because they're going to, the wicked humans are going to continue to perpetrate that. How many understand what I'm talking about? So he's going to move his demons. How many are still with me tonight? So he's going to move his demons a little further. So now watch. What am I saying? Well, the major spiritual battles are not where Satan already has conquered. It's always where the wave is going. In the United States, it's the suburbs and rural America and Central America now. He's gotten most of our cities. He has a lot of, a lot of strongholds in our cities. In New York, it's uptown, Manhattan, uh, the Ritzy section. In Birmingham, it's, past, it's going to Centerpoint, uh, Trustville, maybe even Mountain Brook because it's going that way. Why? Now watch, because here's what will shock you. By the way, before I get there, well, here's what will shock you. All, mostly all the areas of crime that I have portrayed tonight, at one time or another, had strong spiritual churches in them. And what happens is the churches fall first because that's where his battle is. Once the church is gone, the element of the Holy Spirit and the controlling area of, of demonic warfare is gone and he moves in. How many of you understand what I'm talking about? Let me prove it to you. I will prove it to you tonight. This is the United States murder uh, uh, and uh, uh, non-negligent manslaughter, which means it's purposeful. Per residence. Baltimore is number one. Excuse me. Detroit is number two. Philadelphia, number three. Chicago is down over here. This is, for the, this, is this year. This is per 1,000. You can see this is the, the murder rate per city. Now, I'm going to just take a couple of those cities and show you. Look at Chicago. Chicago is number seven, and it's uh, moving up. It keeps moving up. Do you know the church that used to be in Chicago? You know, you know the evangelist that used to preach there? The, almost the whole place was spirit-filled, by the way. You have any idea who he was? Have you ever heard the word, the name D.L. Moody? D.L. Moody was in Chicago. D.L. Moody single-handedly and through the, had so many converts that Chicago was really kind of, in the turn of the century, a little bit further than the turn of the century, D.L. Moody was evangelizing Chicago. Once that church got infiltrated, and by the way, there's a history in every one of these churches, his church got infiltrated, split about a hundred times. Once that happened, everything just flew apart in Chicago and we saw crime come in in mass. And as that crime came in, now Chicago is an area. It's a stronghold for the enemy. Let me give you another one. How many of you know uh, New York City? 18th on the, on the list. David Wilkerson's revival of the 1960s hit New York City. That's where it first hit. It's a second wave that's there now. And then the city had some major churches that were powerful. One of the churches I preached at, as a matter of fact, we helped, helped build was the church that was right across from Penn Station, uh, which Cheryl's, uh, Cheryl's family actually helped build in that, in that church. And uh, that was a massive huge movement. They used to stand for blocks outside that church. That's not even there anymore. The church isn't even there anymore. Catherine Kuhlman preached in that church. D.L. Moody preached in that church. Um, all of the known God people pe preached in that church. Amy Stemple McPherson preached in that church. And it was massive. It was a revival. And then it started to have some internal problems. And the churches fell first. Let me give you a couple other ones as we go along. Charlotte, North Carolina. Look at it. Charlotte, North Carolina. It's moving up the charts. It's been moving up the charts since 1980. Does anybody know what was in Charlotte, North Carolina? PTL. PTL. It fell apart. How many are starting to see a pattern? You, you, you attack the church. The enemy is the enemy's strategy. You attack the church. It gives me chills because I think about, about the areas that we live in. I think about, did you know in the South Side, South Side is one of the hardest places that, uh, for crime in, in Birmingham. Did you ever go down the South Side and look at the beautiful churches that are there? 
They're huge, beautiful Baptist churches and, and uh, huge churches. And those churches are all but dead right now. And what's happened? The enemy's moved in. So the church is his first line of strategy. He wants to break up churches. He wants to bring pastors into sin. He wants to bring splits into churches. Come on, this should make some sense to you when you're looking at churches around our area. How many churches do you know of that would split or churches that are no longer strong? Look at Centerpoint area. Look at any area. And you can see the churches go first. The enemy moves in. Come on, how many know what I'm talking about? This is his strategy. He wants to do that. Now watch, and I'm going to get a little bit heavy with you tonight. Is that all right? Listen, so what am I saying? The devil's greatest battles are always centered in strong churches first. In the next geographical location, he's looking to take over. So if he has a plan to expand his, his territory, what he's going to center on first are the churches. I was doing a uh, study last week, and I talked about wolves in sheep's clothing. I probably showed one of the greatest, uh, greatest uh, pictures I ever had. It was a wolf dressed in a sheep's clothing. And that's what the Bible says. Be careful, because there will be people you entertain that are wolves in sheep's clothing when you go to church. So Centerpoint, Trustville, Homewood. I think they're on his map right now. Uh, the battle is for and always is for starts in a church to mislead them, to split them, to diffuse them through sin in the pulpit or in the leadership. So, listen, this is very hard. I'm going to say it to you, but you're going to have to listen to it. Too many Christians concentrate. Too many Christians today are worried about closing down bars instead of closing their gossiping lips. The battle has to start and be won in the church. We have all this stuff we want to go and attack crime. It makes me laugh sometimes when I think about churches and they have a vision to take their neighborhood. Take your church first. You know, get yourself right first. Before you're looking at the evil that's out there, make sure you police yourself first. Get yourself strong. Come on, how many know what I'm talking about? Too many Christians concentrate on their fighting abilities on abortion clinics and we should fight them. But they don't think anything about slicing up their fellow Christians with criticism. That's, that's just as much murder as an abortion clinic. But you know, you never hear it that way, do you? You never hear that. We are called, Paul calls us to be lovers. He calls us to love each other. He doesn't call us to tear down each other. And we, we, when we allow that in a church, when we allow that in the body, we break up the unity and the enemy gains a foothold. The next thing he will do is pull down that church so he can take the area. That's his mode of, of operation. It will never change. And I'm, a, I'm surprised nobody has made a lesson out of this and teaches it all over America. I'm surprised nobody puts this in a book and talks about satanic strategy. I'm surprised that we don't even think about this when this is the biggest problem in American churches today. Now watch. Some churches concentrate on new fads instead of living in the old truths. The devil is usually working in the area where you're least likely to find him. Let me repeat that. He usually works in the area here, least likely to find him. Satan's not out on the town Saturday night, contrary to popular opinion. He's gone to bed early so he can get up and go to church Sunday morning. <laughs> the spiritual battle is always fought where a man is giving out the word of God and where a church is standing for the word of God. That's the place where the devil wants to destroy. It's the place he wants to put his efforts. That's the place where the battle rages. It's the front line. Sometimes the most dangerous place you can be spiritually is in the church on Sunday morning. Because the end, and then, listen, because you're getting the word of God, but you don't think the enemy wants you to hear the word of God without a battle, do you? How many times have you been in church and you sat in the back and the pastor had this great message, but you watched this person over here and they have distracted you? And you don't think that's part of the battle? You don't think that's part of the enemy getting you off that word? Or you heard, you heard somebody said to me the other uh, while ago, they said, uh, I'm taking my child into, the, into your service and uh, I don't want that child to disrupt you because it kind of cries a lot. And I said, let me tell you something. You can bring a million children into this service. I don't even hear anyone. When I'm going to preach, nothing bothers me. I'm preaching that word. It may bother someone else. They have to discipline themselves. But the truth is the enemy wants that. And I'm going to prove that to you tonight biblically. Uh, and I know what you're saying. Come on, Pastor. You don't expect us to believe that the enemy gets up to go to church on Sunday mornings. That's exactly what I want you to believe. Let me tell you why. Don't think that Satan stays away. Let me prove it to you. Let me ask you. Let me ask this question. Where would you say the most dangerous place was in Jerusalem the night that Jesus was arrested? Where do you think the enemy was the most active in Jerusalem the night the enemy was arrested? Was it in the Sanhedrin? Was it in Herod's Hall? Was it in the, uh, the uh, headquarters of the, of the Roman guards? If you said the upper room, you'd be right. John chapter 13, verse 20. Watch. Truly, truly, verily, verily, I say unto you, he that receives whomsoever I send receives me, Jesus speaking. He that receives me receives him that sent me. 
When Jesus thus said, he was troubled in spirit and testified and said, Verily, verily, I say unto you, that one of you shall betray me. Notice this is in the Last Supper, by the way. One of you shall betray me. Then the disciples looked on one another, doubting whom he spake, of whom he spoke. Now they were leaning on Jesus' bosom, one of his disciples whom Jesus loved. That's John, by the way. Simon Peter therefore beckoned to him, to John, that he should ask who it should be of whom he was spake. Here's what happened. They're leaning at the Last Supper. And by the way, forget about the pictures. I hate to ruin all your images, but forget about the pictures of Jesus in the middle and, and six disciples on this side and six disciples on that side. That's an American concept. They were lying down. The Middle Easterners do not eat sitting in stools like we do or chairs. They lie down for, for, for uh, digestion's sake. And it was probably couches and there probably was no order to them at all. And they're lying down. Their heads are just a little bit raised, probably on an arm. And they're lying down on kind of like on a Roman couch. How many of you ever heard of Roman sofas? They ate on those. And so they're not just for your, your vestibule. And so they're lying down as, and John is closer to Christ. He's, it's, it's, not a, it's not like you're very, very separated for like a chair. You're very close. You, you maybe have two or three of them on one, on one of these types of sofas. So they're lying down. John's next to him, next to his chest. And so Peter, when Jesus says this, Jesus is eating. When he says this, Peter goes like this to John. Ask him. He indicated to John, ask him who it is. So I want to put a little bit of flesh to this. He should ask of who it was he spoke. He then, lying on Jesus' breast, said unto him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, he it is to whom I shall give a sop when I have dipped it. So they have a central location where they eat. It's not like everybody had a cup and everybody had a fork and spoon. That's not the way the Middle Easterners eat. They eat in one large, one large pot. Matter of fact, I took Cheryl to, the, to Jericho one year, and uh, they brought out chicken, and they, told us we, they asked us what we wanted, and we said chicken, and it was chicken with rice. And you remember this? Um, the guy came out, and they had this huge thing with four or five chickens in it and rice, and he's taking his hands and just pushing it up and over. That's <laughs> the way they eat. And so they'll take their bread, their pita. They don't use forks. Pita is usually a fork. They'll take that pita and they'll just dip it. That's a sop. And so what happens is, because Jesus is near it, he takes it and he says, the one who I give it to, he's passing him out. He's given some of them. So he passes it to Judas, obviously. And when he had dipped the sop, he gave it to Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon. And after the sop, Satan entered into him. Then said Jesus unto him, thou, that thou doest, do it quickly. Now listen to what I'm going tonight. There it is, right after Christ's... Right after this Christian service, this was a, I mean, what better service can you be than eating a last meal with Jesus? I mean, you, we say we've gone to church because we've, we've heard a good message. Jesus is there. This is going to church. The disciples are with him. It's a holy time. It's a time where he just washed their feet. That's a Christian service. It's a time where they sang a hymn. That's a Christian service. They're going to church. And who's right there with them? Satan. Satan's not afraid to go to church. He's not afraid to get right in there with us. Because that's where the battle is. Now watch. They were having church that night. Twelve disciples, Jesus and Satan. He entered that room with them. And at the opportune time, he entered Judas. We need to recognize our enemy and where the battle is being fought today. We are about to study the armor of God. We will slow down quite a bit. We'll study each piece in the weeks to come. And we'll tell you that this, these weapons are used to fight the enemy. And the enemy is not us. You are not the enemy of someone else. We wrestle not against flesh and blood. If there's somebody that you see in church and they're being used by the enemy, it's not them. It's the enemy. Come on. Somebody say amen. So you've got to be very careful. You don't take and try to strip them of their personality, but you tell them about the spiritual things that are going on. How many are with me tonight? I want you to, I want you to see something. Where, I want you to see where the battle is before you, before you suit up because you can wear the armor and be marching in the wrong direction, by the way. You can be fighting the wrong people. Or you failed to put it on because you thought that the battle was somewhere else. I'm going to church. I don't have to fight a battle in church. Of course you do. The enemy is so active in church, it's not even funny. That doesn't mean you stay home from church. It means that you go and don't let him disrupt it. Come on, somebody say amen. We need to know the enemy today. Look at Ephesians 6.10. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Now, the word strong there in the Greek is the word endunemo. It means to increase in strength and to get stronger and stronger and to work out for power. You know, gyms are really popular today. Everybody wants to go and work out. Uh, somebody asked me the other day, they asked me if I go to the gym. I said, no, I work in my yard. I, I, build, I build rock fences and rock walls. Why would I go and lift dumbbells and put them back and not be able to see anything when I can actually see a wall after I'm done with it? You know, why would I waste my efforts? But people do work out, and I'm not saying you shouldn't. I think that's good for you. But this word means the same thing. Paul's using a, a Greek term again that's used in the Olympics. He's talking about you better be strong because you just don't want to go and take on the enemy. I'm going to give you a little caveat today. 
don't just listen to this message in the next couple weeks. You have to really be prepared for this message. Because if you think you can fight the devil on your own without having strength, you can't. He's stronger than us, not strong enough for God. It means to increase in strength, be strong in the Lord. It means you better be grounded. If you see a satanic battle, you better be grounded. That's why prayer is so important for a church. That's why intercessory prayer is so important for a church or for a family. If you see a battle coming, don't just call people up on the phone and say, hey, would you pray for us? You pray. You make sure you get your strength in God. Uh, the word there, power, is the word kratos. And it means dominion. Know who you have authority over in the Lord. Remember the child, parent, the employer, employee, the slave, master. He's saying, know that you are not a slave to the enemy. Have your power. Know the authority structure. You've been under authority. Know that the enemy is under you. In Romans, he says that you will bruise Satan under your feet shortly. So he's telling us that we have power. Look at Ephesians 6.11 as we continue here. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. Now, the full armor. Why full armor? Why the whole armor? Because the piece you leave off is where Satan, the shrewd one, seasoned evil warrior, will kill you. You may be excited about your salvation. But maybe your faith is maybe your shield of faith is a little bit low. He's going to go at you with doubt. So it's your weakest part of your armor that he's going to attack. If you have a strong witness for your salvation, then he's really not going to attack that. You know, if you're if you're if you're saved and you're not really sure you're, you're forgiven of your sins, that your helmet's weak. It's not on right. So he's going to attack you at your helmet. But if your faith is if something comes up and your faith is weak, then he's going to keep attacking you at your faith. And so when we study the armor, know this: you're only as strong as the weakest part of your armor. And by the way, there is no armor for your back. So that means you never run from the enemy. You face him straight on. How many are ready for a fight? So this is the way it is. Listen, notice the word stand. This is what I really want you to listen to today. I'm going to visit it once, and then right at the end of this message, I teach you I'm going to visit it again. The word stand is the word histemi. Does anybody know what histemi is? Look at 611 one more time. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand. Histemi. I told you to circle that word. It's extremely important. It's not used many times in Scripture. This is one of the only times it's used in this way. Histemi. It means to continue to hold up, but it's, it has a little bit more. We get our English word histamine from it. How many of you ever heard that one? How many ever heard the word antihistamine? How many ever took an antihistamine? Now listen. It's a compound, by the way, histamine, that's found in plants and animal tissue. And it's found in your body and in, your, in, your, uh, and in mine. It's, uh, if you really want to know the chemical compound of it, I know you do. I know you're just waiting to hear the chemical compound. It's C5H9N3, which means it's five parts carbon, nine parts hydrogen, three parts nitrogen. It's a stimulant of gastric secretion. It's used medicinally as a vasodilator, which means it opens up your blood vessels and allows your blood to flow. Paul, you, this, is, this is neat. Paul says, stand in the Lord. Histamine in the Lord. That's why when you get a cold or when you get allergies, you take an antihistamine. It's to close your blood vessels so your nose doesn't run, so you don't get that fever. It's to close those vessels. He's saying, histamine in the Lord. Stand. Let the blood flow. How many of you ever pleaded the blood of Jesus? That's what he's saying. He's saying, don't go on this alone. When you stand against the enemy, let the blood flow. Don't be afraid to plead the blood of Christ. Man, I get chills just thinking about this. Histemi, uh, let the blood flow, a vasodilator, listen, surge of blood. What's Paul saying? Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to let the blood flow against the wiles of the devil. Our greatest strength against the enemy, once we're geared up with the armor of God, is to plead the blood, is to go into battle with the blood of Christ, not with your own, not with, you don't wrestle against the wickedness with what? Flesh and blood. You wrestle, with, you wrestle with Christ's blood. Christ's blood is better than fle- our flesh and our blood. Look at, now notice Ephesians 6.12, and I'll go back there in a moment. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against rulers of this darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. He's just given us a rundown on the, uh, on the study of Satan and his hierarchy. And also in angelology, by the way. So what is demonic warfare? Let me just pause here and spend some time on demonic warfare. Before you hear about the armor, you want to hear about who you're fighting and what's there and what is, how does the enemy come at us? Well, demonic activity happens this way, three ways. And I, I taught this for a long time and uh, I've seen people copy this and that's fine, but this is the way it is. He's going to hit you through oppression, obsession, or possession. Three areas. This is what the enemy works in. Obsession is to burden harshly, to weigh heavily upon the mind and spirit. You know how many people are oppressed today? Depression is a type of oppression. 
it's the enemy working on... How many of you have ever been oppressed by the enemy? Raise your hand. Every one of us should be raising our hands right now because the enemy oppresses us. He comes against us. We get a mindset. Maybe it's a, maybe it's a physical ailment. I was oppressed by the enemy when I had stage 4 cancer. God didn't give me stage 4 cancer. The enemy gave me stage 4 cancer. This is a, it's a work of the enemy. Listen, that's a disease. You know, dis-ease, to put you not at ease, dis-ease. This, this is the whole idea of the enemy. He's to, he wants to oppress us. That's the first way he comes on man, and he's been doing it forever. You don't think the war in Syria is not, is not backed by some, some demonic force. You don't think the war in that Middle East isn't backed by some demonic force. There's still a prince of the power of, per, of the, uh, Persia. Persia is Iran, Iraq, Afghanistan. That's the whole area of Persia. So that prince and Syria, that whole power, that prince is still there. He withstood Daniel. He's oppressing that area. These people are being killed as we speak. They're being killed by their own government as we speak. And no one's stopping it. By the way, he's oppressing the rest of the world not to stop it. So the enemy is oppressing, whether it's an individual or a nation or maybe a city or even a church. He can oppress the church. Do you ever come to church and say, man, what are we going to do now? We lost our pastor. How many is this ringing a bell with? Where are we going to go now? That's oppression. You know, if you, if you dwell long enough on that, then all of that excitement of winning a battle is gone. And all you're thinking about is, oh, man, what are we going to do? Look at this is happening and this is happening. I remember when the first person left my church, my church was growing. And one, of the, one of the older ladies in my first church that I had here in Parkway Christian Fellowship, growing like crazy, one of the fastest growing churches in the nation for three years in a row. And uh, one, of the, one, of the, one of the stalwarts of the church called me up. I was painting. I'll never forget. I was relaxing, which was rare for me. And I was oil painting. Called me up on a Saturday and she told me she wouldn't be there Sunday. She was leaving the church. She said to me, Nothing against you, Pastor Mark. Well, how many of you know it's everything against me when somebody's leaving the church? And I, rem I remember feeling this air of, of oppression coming in on me. And I remember, we all feel that. That's the enemy. He does it all the time to us. Second one is obsession. That's preoccupation with a fixed idea or unwanted feeling to occupy the mind excessively. Men today, they tell us, in Christian churches, 55% uh, of the men have pornography ha habits, uh, habitual pornography habits. That is... Obsession. They're obsessed with pornography. If you really break pornography down, it really is an obsession. It's not something. It's not something that you willfully do. It's something that you continually do. And the enemy, oh, the enemy has gives you a, an obsession. An obsession is like being obsessive compulsive. An obsession, you have to do it. Something's telling you you have to do it. Now, understand, oppression is when I take my finger and I push it on you. It's pushing you under. Obsession is something where you're putting the finger on yourself. And you're putting yourself under this pressure. How many are getting this today? It's good teaching. Listen, it's, it's never going to change. And then lastly, it's possession. It's a state of being dominated as by evil spirits to have us property, exert influence over or control over. And yes, I've been in, my girls used to ask me this all the time. Yes, I've been in places where we had to cast out demons from people. You don't even want to think about it. Yeah, I don't even want to tell you about it. You don't want to even know about it. It's horrific. It's horrendous. And uh, it's not something I get even any, any satisfaction telling or repeating about. You never want to be involved with, the, with someone who's possessed of, of, a, of a demon because it's one of the most horrendous things you will ever see. And no one telling you it can fully under, uh, explain it. And basically when you hear it, you really won't even understand it because it seems so far-fetched. But he does this on very rare occasions. You'll see him do that many, many times. We use that word all the time, so-and-so's possessed. Listen, if you saw possession, you'd know who's possessed. We, we see it a lot of times in third world countries. In third world countries, the enemy has possessed a lot of people. I've seen people take, took my daughters to Jamaica and Africa, my son, and they would see demon-possessed people walking the streets, and everybody, saved and unsaved, knew that they were demon-possessed. They'd throw rocks at them. It was just horrendous what they saw. So why doesn't he do it in America? Let me tell you why. Because most Americans he has oppressed or he has obsessed. He does not want to show himself. He is not lo looking for everybody to see a demon in him. He wants to, he deals subtly. He's the best guerrilla warfare enemy you could possibly have. If he has an area in oppression or obsession, why would he possess it? Say somebody is in the church and they're obsessed with something, then the enemy controls them. Well, why would he want to show himself and possess that, that person when he could do more damage without uh, possessing them? How many know what I'm talking about? So, just watch. So how does the enemy and spiritual wickedness oppose us? This is the way. And by the way, he uses lots of tools to initiate those who are naive. And there's a lot of people who are naive. Um, I grew up with rock and roll. And uh, let me tell you something. Most of the rock and roll I grew up, before, before people started to use all kinds of satanic images in it now just to get notoriety, before it was really hardcore. People actually were 
pushing a message. And uh, rock and roll, even I remember Led Zeppelin, some of you don't remember them, but they sang a song that was very popular, and he said, there's always two roads you can go by, and there's always time to change the road you're on. It was a blatant statement that says, you can, you can party, do drugs, do anything you want. There's two roads, one to hell, one to heaven, but you can always change your road. That's, that's a lie from the enemy, because you don't know how much time you have. So rock and roll used to be very, very, right after the protest movements of the 60s and 70s, they got to be very, very heady talking about spiritual things. Now it's kind of like, who knows? But uh, he wants, how do people get involved in these things? Well, there's lots of ways that they dabble in spiritual realms under the guise of fun and games or wanting to know the future or false teachings. Listen, Satan is the evil entrepreneur of men's destinies. The occult, by the way, not a, not a cult, a cult, a cult is a false religion, goes away from the doctrines of scripture. The occult is dealing in supernatural influences agencies or phenomena beyond the realm of human comprehension. Let me give you some of the occult things that you may not know are occult. Believing in aliens is occult. It's going on beyond the, the realm of the natural. If you believe that aliens' life forms are out there, and by the way, we've been, worked, we've been searching for sounds from outer space for, for 40 years, CT, Search for Extraterrestrial Intelligence, big radio telescopes pointed all over the skies because sound waves keep traveling. We haven't heard a sound in 46 years. There's no one out there. We are the center of this creation. And the reason why, because Jesus came once and for all to die for us. If there were other living beings, sentient beings out there with spirits, Jesus would have had to go there and die. And the Bible would be a lie because he came once and for all. So uh, fixation with aliens is really kind of opening yourself up to demonic beings. If there's, if there's things being seen, I promise you it's demons more than it's aliens. Tarot cards, very scary. I'll tell you about those. Dungeons and Dragons used to be a very familiar game. Ouija board, horoscopes. How about this? Medians, occultists, psychics, psychic hotlines. They are huge in America. They're gigantic. Everybody wants to know their future. That's dabbling with the occult. The occult is a primary to get you to be to get Satan to to kind of control your life. So, and by the way, I know Christians who have done this stuff. So I'm not just you know we're not just talking about cults, false religions, New Age, secret societies, liberal Christian religions, spiritists inside evangelical churches. Listen, the occult is an unnatural preoccupation with the future. I teach a Revelation Bible study. I'm very, I teach it for sometimes two, three years at a time. It's very intriguing. It's very interesting. But I warn people. We are only given a skeleton of that. When we have a preoccupation with that, with the, with the occult, with the future, if God wanted us to know the future, he'd tell us. But what does he say? He says that to, today is the day of your salvation. He says that you take no thought of tomorrow. For tomorrow will take care of itself. He said, such as the evil is sufficient for the day. And so he's talking about it. Now watch. Tarot deck contains 78 cards. Let me show you how this has infiltrated us. The tarot deck contains 78 cards divided into two main groups. 56 lesser arcana and the king, queen, the jack, uh, the cavalier, and the knight. Today's ordinary deck of playing cards. This is why people stop playing cards in tr Christian churches. And I'm not being legalistic on you today. Trust me, I'm not doing that. This is why they did it, because they saw something way back when. Now watch, this first century, or in the 1800s. Today's ordinary deck of playing cards seemingly descended from the medieval tarot deck. As card playing increased in popularity and the major arcana cards were dropped, except for the fool, which was retained as the joker, and the cavalier and page were combined into today's jack, thus giving us the standard deck of 52 cards plus the joker. This is why some of them shunned playing cards. Most Pentecostal churches in the beginning shunned that. Now, we know we're not doing it that reason, but that's why they were doing it. So, horoscope. There are people who, who check their horoscope every single day. Listen, you have no sign. You don't have a sign. If you talk, somebody said, my sign's Libra. It's not my sign. It's Jesus' sign. Je the whole, whole idea of the 12 constellations, I teach a star, a star study. The whole idea of the 12 constellations is a prophecy of Jesus. We've warped them through mythology, but it's a prophecy of Jesus. It's not about us. It's about Jesus. And so that's been warped. The enemy has warped those things. The Bible says in Psalm 19.1 that the stars utter their speech from, from, day, from night to night. Their circle goes around the, the globe. And that's a pretty interesting statement since they didn't even think the world was round at that time. So listen to what it says, Isaiah 8, 19. And when they shall say unto thee, seek unto them that have familiar spirits, unto wizards that peep and that mutter, should not a people seek unto their God for the living to the dead? It is forbidden for us to contact the dead in Deuteronomy. It's called necromancy. 
And people do this all the time. I'm surprised that Christians come to me. One guy, one guy came to me not too long ago and said, hey, there's this lady that's helping people in New Jersey. She has a TV show and she's helping them contact their, their dead relatives and she's really helping them out of their depression and, and uh, she seems like she's doing well for people. That is the angel of light. That's the enemy. You cannot justify doing well for someone by going against Scripture. You cannot contact the dead. The dead, it is, it is appointed unto the man once to die and then the judgment. Somebody came the other day to me and said this. Uh, their, their relative, who was a Christian, just died. And they said they saw him in a dream and they said something to him. They said, was that them? And I said, no, it was not your relative. What it was, either your memory of your relative or... It was maybe the enemy trying to show you something. You can dream of your relatives. I dream of my dead relatives. That's a great thing. How many of you dream of dead relatives? That's your memory. That's what, sometimes that's God soothing you. But they don't have a message for you. If they had a message for you, then they're going totally against Scripture. And you're opening yourself up to demonic oppression. I know that doesn't hit you well. I know sometimes you think, well, they said something nice. But trust me, if they're going to say anything to you and it doesn't back the Bible, then it's not something you want to stake your, your, your life on. Because it's necromancy. You're going to see them again. You're going to talk to them again. Come on. You know that. So watch. You still with me tonight? I know it's tough for you. But watch. It goes on a little bit further. Oh, the depths and the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. Romans 11.33. So there's certain things we will never find out. There's certain things we're not supposed to find out. You go to most... Um, you go to most... Um, what are the gypsies? Fortune tellers. They're gypsies, by the way. They're taught from this, this small. We started gypsy churches. They have to get saved. Once they get saved, they have to reject fortune telling. They'll, I've seen them do it on an altar. As a matter of fact, I led two ladies to the Lord that were gypsy fortune tellers. Most fortune tellers you see are gypsies. I led two ladies to the Lord. She called up her aunt, who was, on the, who was a fortune teller, reading cards while she was at the altar. Had her cell phone handed to me at the altar, and I led her aunt to the Lord. Listen. You have, and they have, they have to leave that profession because they realize it's dealing with demonic stuff. And most of it's just kind of, kind of wisdom of reading people, but a lot of it gets into some spiritual things and they'll tell you that. So these are the things that the enemy does. He uses lots of tools to get us to do it. People dabble in spiritual realms and the guise of fun and games or wanting to know the future, or false teachings, or in a variety of ways. Let me just tell you this, but make no mistake about it. Satan could care less how, in, how he initiates someone. He has an age-old strategy to control, not just individuals, but the entire world. Here it is. He starts from the, from the uh, ground up. John 10.10. 10. The thief comes not to f but for to steal, kill, and destroy. It's his, whole, it's his whole reason for being here is to destroy. And uh, Jesus said, I am come that I may have life, that they may have life, and they may have it more abundantly. That word is perisos, supernatural, superabundantly. We get our word periscope, by the way, from it. Listen, first thing he wants to do is control you and I. Steal from us. Jesus, kill our bodies, destroy our souls. The enemy is trying to do that actively for every one of us. Every single one of us, he's attacking. How many of you would say to me today that the enemy has not attacked you this week? How many of you does the enemy attacks one way or another? He's constantly at that because he knows who you are. Secondly, he tries to go through your family members. What, wor what worse hurt can you have than if you have a child or a grandchild that's not serving the Lord? You know, it, you know what happens to you. It's a, it's a pain. It's a deep-rooted pain. Then control family heads kill our, our, right, our righteous line. A family head has a spiritual righteousness. The Bible says by one is the family made holy. So he's trying to do that. Then to control our churches. You take the heads of family out of the churches and you control, you control the churches. Watch. Destroy our witness. Control our morals, which will steal a nation. Control religious system that God is dead. We're seeing it in America right now. We're seeing Christianity being attacked in America. That means he's controlled individuals. He's controlled the family through abortion and through, through the lack of marriage. Uh, he's controlled family heads. How many single parents are out there right now with their kids? He's controlled churches. How many churches are not following God? He's controlled morals. Now we have moral dilemmas. If you watched the Democratic National Convention, you saw all our morals go up, up in smoke. Come on, how many of you watched it? Then he's religious systems. God is dead. God has no way in America. That's what, that's what he wants. Then you control the laws. Which is, this is, a, this is a strategy. You destroy order by bringing out lawlessness. The laws already are pointed against Christians, and they're going further. Then you control the governments, which means you steal our foundations. Listen, if the founding fathers would see what we did to America, what would happen is they would turn in their graves. Uh, then you control a nation, kill our children and our hope of peace, and then you can control the entire world so you can fulfill his desire. He's to steal a bride from Christ, kill mankind, and destroy the world. Steal kill, and destroy. He is on a mission. 
and he has lots of different names. Listen, he has many names. We talked about what he looks like. Here's what we picture him as. It has nothing to do with what he looks like. The Bible says he's an angel of light. He's a cherubim. You know what a cherub that covers? It means he has four wings. We know that. Not angels. By the way, this will, this will kind of surprise you. Angels, nowhere in scripture do we have angels singing. We don't know if angels sing. We have lots of, uh, lots of plays for Christmas where the angels came singing. The angels didn't sing. They announced. They had, you look in your scripture, you'll never see the word angel sang at the same thing. Angels don't sing. They may, but they don't sing as far as we know. They may, but it's not mentioned in scripture. Let me put it that way. Also, we don't know if angels have wings. We know seraphim have six wings. We know cherubim have two wings. But there's no place in scripture where it says angels has wing, have wings. So there's a lot of misconceptions we have. The other misconception is this. Lucifer is not an evil-looking thing. You were right, sister, last night, Charism- last week. Charismatic, beautiful. He is an angel of light. The Bible talks about him in several names. Devil means slanderer or false accuser. Dragon, serpent. Satan means adversary. Murderer, tempter. Beelzebub. I like this one. Jesus called him Beelzebub. You know what it means? There's a fly that goes over dung. How many know what dung is? It means Lord of the dung. It means the fly that circles the dung. Jesus called Beelzebub Satan that. Belial means ungodly, wicked one, deceiver, liar, serpent. In the, in the Revelation 9-11, in the Greek, Abaddon, which means destroying angel, and Apollyon, which is Hebrew for destroyer. In Ezekiel 28-13-19, it gives us a description of him, which I many times read to people so they know what he's like. Thou hast been in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was like covering the sardix, the topaz, diamond, beryl, the onyx, the jasper, the sapphire, yeah, breastplate, by the way. And the uh, workmanship of thy tabrets and thy pipes, they're tambourines that were built inside of him. Prepared in the day they were created. Thou art the anointed cherub that covers. I have set thee so. You're upon the holy mountain of God. There's a mountain. There's topography in heaven. It's not all clouds. There's a topography. Thou hast walked up and down in the midst of the stones of fire. There's more fire in heaven, by the way, than there ever was in hell because hell was created from one of those stones. Thou hast perfect in the ways from the day thou was created until iniquity was found in thee. By the multitude of thy merchandise, your talents, they have filled the midst of thee with violence. And thou hast sinned. Therefore, I will cast thee as profane out of the mountain of God. And I will destroy thee, O, cher- o covering cherub, from the midst of the stones of fire, from the middle of it. The stones of fire, what you walk them down, up and down, was destroyed from. Hell was created from the stones of fire, by the way. Thine heart was lifted up because of your beauty. You've corrupted the wisdom and reason of thy brightness. I will cast thee to the ground. I will lay thee before kings that they may behold thee. Thou hast defiled the sanctuaries by the multitude of thy iniquities, churches. By the iniquity of thy traffic, therefore I will bring forth a fire from the middle of thee. It will devour thee, and I will bring thee ashes upon the earth in the sight of all them that behold thee. And all, they that know thee among the people shall be astonished at thee. Thou shalt be a terror, and never thou shalt be any more. Listen to Ezekiel. Thou hast been in the Eden, the garden of God, every precious stone. It goes on to say that. Uh, this is the same text, by the way. You can also find in Isaiah chapter 14. Now, let me just go a little bit further. So he has many names. And those who really get involved with him through satanic rituals will quickly realize that even the symbols used on a satanic altar are in opposition to the Christian symbols of life, power, forgiveness, and resurrection. Now, there's not a whole lot of people who are having a satanic altar. He doesn't have to have people have a satanic altar. But if they did, here's the symbols they have to have it. By the way, we know the nail is symbolic of the cross and crucified life. He'll have on every satanic altar is a serpent's dagger. It's a sacrificial death of an evil death. Then there's the open tomb for us, the life, no body. Every satanic altar has a head of death, a skull. It's on every satanic altar, bones of death. The resurrection life from the tomb is powerful for us. There's a candle on every satanic altar, which is mixed with wax and human fat, the firelight of the burning flesh. Hitler would actually, excuse me, Nero would actually burn Christians as candles. He dipped them in wax and burned them, a type of antichrist. That we have a laver for sacrificial washing, which comes from Judaism. They'll have a bowl of blood to wash their victims in. Listen, the priests of the Old Testament, had, they were warned, don't cut your flesh. In, in Satanism, self-inflicted inflicted wounds. You ever hear about teenagers cutting themselves? Where do you think that comes from? Uh, empty grave in Christianity. Dead victim is left on altar in Satanism. High priest's robe, no hood in the Old Testament. Hooded priests, you've seen them all, black hooded priests. Stones in the ephod. They will have crystals around their neck. No cutting of their hair. Most of them, the high priests of the Satanists, will have their head shaved. And so we're seeing these things over and over. We're seeing it in society, and nobody recognizes it. There's symbols that are there. This is the Baphomet. It's a goat head, symbol for Satan. Pentagram, five-pointed star, usually encircled demonic afterlife. Jesus is talks of the sheeps and the goats. Another form of the Ankh, an eternal wheel, which is right here. An Ankh is an Egyptian symbol of 
life, everlasting life, but it's demonic. It's not a cross at all. This symbol is a symbol for Satanism. It's been a symbol for Satanism for thousands of years. Muslims use it right now on top of every single one of their mosques. It should tell you that he is controlling it. This is the eternal wheel. The peace symbol was taken from this. In the 1960s, the peace symbol is a broken cross. It doesn't mean peace. It's actually a satanic symbol. This one, the symbol of life and one way through wings of Lucifer, the satanic trinity, also used in Islam quite a bit. This one is a Syriac Chaldee Muslim word for Baal or Satan. It's used as jewelry. And if you go to any Muslim shops in the Near East, you'll find this as a holy a holy symbol around their neck. It actually is symbolic of Satan himself. The Ankh, Egyptian symbol for life, given after the death of Isis and Horus. And this one's on the back of your dollar bill. The eye of Horus, or the all-seeing eye, typifying the sun. Most people think that that's the eye of God. It is not the eye of God. On the top of it, it says, E pluribus unum, out of many one. And it says on the bottom, Novus Ordo Seclorum, New World Order. Now, the ones that printed our money were looking to bring all the monies together. And so there's a lot of things that the enemy has infiltrated that we don't even see. We take it for granted. So I want you to be aware that the enemy has many, many fronts. We're going to continue to study about the enemy. We're going to study about the fronts that he has. But I really want you to hear it. And those who really get involved with him through satanic rituals quickly see what's going on. So the symbols we see all over other religions have a route back to ancient Babylon and the symbols, and Satan himself. And yes, we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but spiritual wickedness. Next week, I will tell you about the confrontation of our warfare, and our study will go on the, on the spiritual warfare. But now, turn back with me to Ephesians 6.11. Let me just re read that verse one more time for you, so you understand. It says, Put on the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. I want you to picture yourself in a moment, standing up, esteemy, and out of you, the enemy's trying to attack you, out of you is the spiritual blood flow of Christ. He cannot conquer the blood. He cannot cross the bloodline. He can't do a thing with the blood of Christ. That's why when I go home, when, when there was a problem, when there were ever problems in my family or problems in, in, my, in somebody's home, I will go there and I will plead the blood of Jesus Christ because the blood covers. The enemy cannot. He can defeat you. He can't defeat the blood of Christ. Amen. When I was sick with cancer, we pleaded the blood over my life. Somebody asked me today about being prayed for. Matter of fact, let me tell you something. Where's our sister to ask me to pray for? Right here. There's my brother. He, he met me tonight. Listen to this. He met me tonight. He prays for me in the back. He met me and he prayed. We're going to close. He met me and prayed for me and he said, I really feel that somebody needs healing tonight, that you need to lay your hands on somebody and pray, and pray healing for them. He doesn't know this and you didn't know that. She came up to me right after I came out and said, I really need healing tonight. Would you lay your hands on me and pray for me? This is spiritual warfare. Had I been here late and not been unto my duties and discipline, I wouldn't have been praying, for, I wouldn't have been praying with him. And basically what would have happened is I would have missed an opportunity to have a confirmation for this. How many know what I'm talking about tonight? It all works together. So would you stand with me tonight? Father, we just thank you and praise you tonight, Lord God. I thank you for the blood of Christ. Lord, we are going into spiritual warfare, Lord God. Lord, we're not kooks. We don't think that there's a demon around every corner, but we do know that the enemy is active and he's alive, Lord God. Lord, he tries to get our families, our children, Lord God. He tries to get us when we work, Lord God. He tries to get us in our church. But Lord, we withstand him. We stand up to him tonight, Lord God. We stand to the wiles of the devil, Lord God, taking what Paul has told us. Finally, brothers, stand up. Stand in the faith. Be strong. And that's tonight, Lord, we come against every demonic activity, Lord God, that would try to hinder us or this church, Lord God. We come against sickness, Lord God. We come against anything, Lord God, that would hinder the body, Lord. And I just pray tonight that you would lift this church up. Lord, we breathe and speak life to it tonight. Lord, bless everyone that's come. Bless their families, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. Let's give the Lord a hand tonight. Amen.